Hello out there. Thank you for tuning in today. We're going to be exploring the relationship between obesity and processed foods, or processed foods, depending on how you like to pronounce it. I'm joined again by Dr. Deirdre Tobias. She's an obesity and nutritional epidemiologist who also specializes in research methods. Dr. Tobias is an assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I discovered Dr. Tobias through a great perspective piece that she recently published entitled Eliminate or Reformulate Ultra-Processed Foods, Biological Mechanisms Matter. As we discussed in this episode, there's a plausible link between obesity and ultra-processed food consumption, but there's also a lot of nuance and a lot we don't understand. As with all areas of nutrition, we need to be very careful about black and white, good versus evil thinking. To learn more about the nuances of nutrition research, I recommend checking out my previous conversation with Dr. Tobias, as well as Harvard's Nutrition Source website. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Tobias. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to be talking today about processed foods and nutrition science. Can you speak briefly to how you became interested in this topic? Sure. So my background is as a nutritional epidemiologist, and my research interests are in the area of obesity and its related chronic diseases, trying to understand the link between diet and lifestyle mechanistically and what interventions work to really move the needle on a lot of these really complicated health relationships. So why don't we get started with some definitions? So how are processed foods being defined in different contexts? Right. So there's no one definition. Actually, there's many different scales that have been used, metrics for guidelines and for industry and for research. But basically, a lot of it just is attempting to define what many of us call junk food in perhaps a more scientific way. And one of the most commonly used metrics is called NOVA classification. And it basically ranks foods into one of four categories. So the first is un or minimally processed foods, which is the edible components of plants and animals without much modification. You can put it in the refrigerator or in a can or jar, and that's fine. That can still be considered class one, but no other major modifications to it. And then class two are these processed culinary ingredients. So our oils, butters, salt, sugar that are not foods themselves, but are featured in a lot of other foods. Class three, now we're getting more processed. These are our processed foods. They retain the basic features of the food that they came from. So applesauce, for example, but without a lot of added industrial ingredients. But they may be enhanced in some way for either preservation or food safety or palatability. So for example, applesauce with cinnamon and sugar added, but are otherwise not in this fourth category, which are the ultra processed foods, which contain ingredients that you would never find in a kitchen that are only available for industrial use and are added or manipulated in the foods and ingredients for even further enhanced palatability or shelf life or color or anything else that essentially are tools for marketing or shelf life of the products. So those are the four main categories. And this top one of ultra processed represents over 50% of the U.S. 
caloric intake. So it's junk food, but it's also very broad. So it contains half of what Americans eat every day. And it's comprised of not just your snacks, but also sugary beverages and foods on the go, both fast food, but also prepared meals like your hungry man dinner, things like that. It's a pretty broad categorization. And for research purposes, there's questions about whether that's useful or not, because it just encompasses so much. But at the same time, that category of food still gets consistently associated with obesity and observational studies and a number of health outcomes. So it is picking up something about our food supply. Yeah, I can imagine there being a lot of diversity when I think about just even a single category like breakfast cereals. It seems surprising that you might see similar health outcomes with something like Cheerios or something like frosted Cocoa Puff Fruit Loops. Or if you look at the frozen food section, you have some smart dinner vegetable stir fry and you've got mac and cheese with bacon. There's a lot of diversity within that. Absolutely. So there's some of these various metrics, including the NOVA, are challenged by some investigators as if they're so broad and half of our calories fall into this category and there's clearly a lot of differences within it between cereals and all the examples you put forth, how useful at the end of the day is it really? Should we be developing policies around something other than this broad classification? But there isn't really a strong alternative yet for this to capture this junk food category with getting the precision that you kind of think of when you think of the difference between Lucky Charms and Cheerios and bacon, mac and cheese and veggie stir fries. So I think it'll be refined probably over time to really kind of zero in on the foods that are really causing whatever the health effects are that we're seeing associated with them. So as an obesity researcher, can you elaborate a bit on how we study this question and some of the evidence that links ultra-processed foods to obesity and other related conditions? The body of evidence, I think it's still fairly new in terms of all the other food categories we can think of, like the food groups and whole grains and things like that. Ultra-processed food is catching up to many of those others. And in terms of clinical trials, there was a short-term feeding study that was conducted down at the National Institutes of Health with Dr. Kevin Hall. What that importantly showed was patients in the metabolic ward, so they're locked up, they have no other access to food, they're not told to lose weight, they're given no instructions other than to kind of live in this room and eat what they're given, when presented with the ultra-processed foods gained weight. And in no other feeding study dietary pattern that this group has conducted was actually able to induce weight gain. And it's relatively short term. So would they eventually have gotten sick of it and gone back down to their normal weight? Maybe. Who knows? But in no other context has weight gain been induced other than on this ultra-processed diet. And observationally, that matches up to what's seen as well when we look even longer term with kind of habitual or usual intake of what foods people consume. Those who tend to consume more calories in this ultra-processed category are more likely to gain weight or have obesity-related health outcomes over longer-term follow-up. So the evidence really is consistently against ultra-processed foods in terms of obesity and related chronic diseases. The mechanisms of why, I think, are what really remain elusive. What is it about these foods that are inducing either overconsumption or interfering metabolically, I think is still very much unknown. I remember that Kevin Hall study, if I recall correctly, the two groups were presented very similar amounts of calories, salt, sugar, fat, similar nutrients. 
but those presented with the processed food version chose to eat more. Is that correct? Yes. What we call like ad libitum or when you're just eating freely, whatever you want, they overate calories on that diet. Overeat meaning enough to lead to weight gain compared to the control diet for that study. Mm -hmm. We could probably have a whole discussion about the energy balance debate, I guess. Where do you stand now on the extent to which energy intake can explain the role of ultra processed foods? That's a really good question. I think at the end of the day, weight gain in an individual can only ultimately be explained by them increasing calorie intake. Holding water and lean mass and all of these other extraneous sources of body weight constant. The way that ultra processed foods kind of get you to do that, I think is what's unknown. Like what about it is driving overconsumption? We do have this notion that they're extra palatable, which is just the scientific word for tasty. They're convenient. They tend to be more affordable. And all of those reasons might contribute to them being featured more often on your plate than non-ultra processed foods. But why does that lead to weight gain? I think can only really be explained by calories. When it comes to the metabolic outcomes of obesity, it's possible that they have some independent effects. In addition to weight gain, they may also interfere with insulin resistance, for example, or blood pressure because of all the sodium. So there could be detrimental effects that aren't all through weight gain, but the upstream source of calories in terms of obesity, I don't really understand how theories that don't include calories in the equation could be developed. Although I think that it's still an area of exploration. So what is it about ultra processed foods that seems to cause this link with obesity and related diseases? What are some of the possible explanations? Personally, I think that's such a fascinating question and will be a very important area of research in the next couple of years. What about this big group zeroing in on the foods, the features, whether it's an ingredient or some non-ingredient feature like convenience or palatability that's driving it, I think is really important to understand. And we don't really know. There are some that think it's all the carbohydrates, for example, and carbs get picked on a lot. Because if we think of sugary beverages, of course, we know those are related to so many detrimental health outcomes. But is it every carb or carb in certain contexts like that? So I think ultra processed foods are not just carbs. They're a bunch of things. And when we look at carbs, not in the context of ultra processed foods, they don't seem to have strong, consistent relationships with obesity and weight gain. So it seems to be something else about ultra processed foods. And in the laboratory setting, we're getting rid of factors like convenience and economics and the marketing because you're just presented with it. So the fact that weight gain occurred in the laboratory setting where all of these kind of extraneous reasons why ultra processed foods might be overeaten are removed, the fact that they still elicit some weight gain in the short term, I think is really interesting. So there might be a physical property of these foods to identify or isolate. What that is, I don't know. And it could be a combination. It could be this kind of fat salt combo or the sweet salt combo. It's hard to say, but... I really hope a lot of research goes into that area because I think that that has the potential for a huge impact public health wise. But is it fair to say we don't know enough to say whether the fact that people simply eat more of them is enough to explain? It may or may not be enough to explain the effect? I think for weight gain, overeating does seem to be, like I said, mathematically 
the explanation if what's causing the overeating, I think, is where the uncertainty is. And, you know, it might not be so much the processing degree, but other ingredients or features or conveniences about it that really drive the overconsumption. For non-weight related outcomes, you know, I think there's less data there, but it could be unrelated to calories and perhaps something more about the foods themselves. I mean, we know sodium is related to blood pressure and heart disease, and that's a key ingredient in most of these processed foods. So that's an example of a single ingredient that could be reformulated or minimized to improve health. And maybe there's other single ingredients like that, but I think it's still new territory. So what are some of the key knowledge gaps that remain and maybe what can we look forward to in the next five, 10 years? Just like, what is that causal factor? I think it remains elusive and it's really frustrating to think we've had these junk foods for decades and scientifically, We don't know what it is about them that's making us overeat. But I don't know if I want to go on the record saying this, but industry probably knows exactly what that is. So now we have to untangle what they've built for decades. And maybe it hasn't been intentional, but at the end of the day, foods are marketed to sell more because that will bring in the dollars. So at the end of the day, we've been left with this category of foods that are just pervasive and unhealthy and How do we like step back out of that, I think is going to be what the research going forward will help us answer. If it's a couple of ingredients that we can eliminate or swap or reduce or reformulate, I think that would be the best case scenario because we've seen success with something like trans fat in that area and similarly with sodium. But are there really any more low-hanging fruit? Because again, back to the diversity of the category of common ingredients that you would find besides sodium or sugar across a huge swath of those foods. It might not be like sodium or sugar or a single ingredient, but it could be a single feature. And it might be something less tangible than sodium or sugar and more psychological or behavioral or something that triggers a cue that we can't tangibly measure in terms of the ingredient label. What comes to mind is kind of the salt, sugar, fat, sort of combination that hits that what they call bliss point in industry, where it's not, again, one ingredient, but the overall tones that the food hits. And it's a combination of like mouthfeel and crunch and whatever it might be for the product that hits it just right. It's not necessarily this one ingredient. That one ingredient would be the best case scenario. And the low-hanging fruit, like you said, might be all out of options for that. So I want to spend a bit of time discussing the strengths and limitations of using the level of processing as a guide to determine how healthy a food is. So we spent a lot of time here discussing the fact that there is a very strong correlation between how much of this ultra-processed food you consume and obesity and related health outcomes, and that we even have at least one controlled study showing that those foods seem to promote overeating. But I worry that it can be dangerous to take this thinking to really simplify it to the point where you use it as a black and white rule that any food that is whole must be healthy and any food that is ultra processed must be evil and avoided at all costs. So what are your thoughts on that oversimplification potential? That's a great question. And it really comes down to like, what are we going to do with this information? And the fact that we can measure diet and when we categorize it this way, this category seems to be picking up something that confers a health risk. And the fact that it represents 50, 60% of our calories 
should be some sort of signal that it's probably too broad of a categorization in terms of guiding our eating behaviors. That would mean we'd have to eliminate half of the foods we we eat if we want to be healthy. And I think aside from just being probably unrealistic from a supply point of view, it also suggests that there could be some heterogeneity within that category. So if you look within ultra-processed foods, it's a huge range of healthfulness when we look at other quality metrics and types of foods and in ways that they're consumed from you know, meals to beverages and everything in between, like snacking. So as a classification to guide our eating behaviors, I think it's at this point way too broad for that reason. And also saying anything that's not ultra processed gets this automatic healthy halo is also a simplification, an oversimplification to me. And when we look among the foods that are not in this ultra processed category, there are some that stick out that we have seen related to health outcomes in observational and even shorter term clinical trial settings, like certain red meat products and other types of foods and food groups that might not be as processed, but still contain additives or other ingredients like sodium that may be implicated in certain health outcomes. So again, not giving anything non-processed a healthy halo and demonizing ultra-processed. Yeah. So some of the examples that come to mind would be butter must be better for you than vegetable oil because it's more whole or you know, a beef burger must be better for you than a plant-based burger because the plant-based burger is more processed if it's trying to recreate meat. Right. And I think pitting against these, you know, seeming substitutions is one way to compare and contrast the processedness per se versus the whole food. And the comparison of something like a Beyond Burger with a real beef hamburger is an interesting one. And the Beyond Burgers were not created with the intent of necessarily giving a healthy alternative, but for giving a realistic alternative. And they were designed to address the potential environmental concerns. For example, if you look at the ingredient lists of a lot of these, they're quite extensive. And that's because it's trying to create this beef flavor, texture, reaction, and experience, but without the beef. So of course, there's going to be all sorts of ways in which non-beef ingredients are manipulated to provide that. Uh, And so if you're judging the healthfulness of the products based purely on number of ingredients or degree of processing, it seems like a slam dunk that a hamburger or the beef will be much more healthy. But that's, you're at the end of the day comparing apples and oranges, even if you you have two things that look almost identical. And the potential health benefits, if there were something for these alternative beef products, might really just be the absence of beef. So there's nothing particularly healthy about these products, but the fact that they don't contain the risk of beef might be just this one sort of like neutral pivot that that you could make instead of taking on the risks of consuming the beef. But whether they have extra benefits beyond that, I think there's still a long ways to go and to be determined. And even among these products, there's a ton of variability. Did you see the study out of Stanford last year comparing Beyond Beef to Real Beef? Yes. I loved the trial name. The acronym was Swap Meat. Mm -hmm. So my takeaway from that was that the Beyond Beef consumers won. They had a slight improvement in cardiovascular risk markers and it was either weight neutral or slightly weight beneficial, but maybe not statistically significant. Yeah, so they created these meals substituting either 
some beef or meat portion of the meal for these Beyond products. And it was crossover. So they experienced both diets and looked at changes of lipids and other markers on on each version of the diet. And it did suggest in this short-term smaller trial, some cardiometabolic advantage of not eating beef or of switching to beef-like products. It's hard to know. Is there, is there something good about these or is it just they're not eating beef? I don't know. That almost seems impossible to disentangle because that substitution is inherently giving you answers to both at the same time. Yeah. And can you speak to the controversial substance called butter? Because I know there's extensive discussion of that in the Harvard blog. And I've looked at this myself and it seems like to me, a slam dunk that vegetable oils do better than butter. And yet you still see people arguing in favor of butter or even virgin coconut oil as another example of a super whole food that doesn't necessarily deserve a health halo. Oh, butter is so controversial and I get it. It's this homesteader product that you can make on the prairie and it's just so ingrained in our just beliefs and diet of just wholeness and wellness and happiness. And the fact that we need to use some factory modified created version to be healthy just seems horrifying. And there was this, you know, era of trans fat that gave margarine and solid fat cooking oil substitutes a really bad rap for a while because the trans fat that they uh, manufacturers needed to get that solid at room temperature consistency for vegetable replacements of, of animal fats really actually was incredibly detrimental to health. And those were eventually banned. And now we don't see them in the market. So I think maybe there's some residual fear from the margins of the 80s that really actually did carry this cardiovascular risk because of this man-made fatty acid. But I don't know if today's version, if we looked into that research again, tells that same story. And the butter that we get at the supermarket, salted, saturated fat, you know, it's not benign. And if you're eating it in excessive quantities, then there is potential concerns for cardiovascular disease risk that if you instead decided to switch to vegetable oils or margarine, that would maybe be mitigated. Yeah, I think the moderation message is an important one that you just alluded to there. I'm a very big fan of the phrase, the dose makes the poison. So I tend not to think in terms of this food is amazing and a superfood and this food is toxic, but how are we balancing the foods that have more positive and more negative health profiles? Yes, exactly. And I know it's so unsatisfying because from a public health point of view, saying, oh, eat this in moderation completely falls flat on its face. It's a non-starter in terms of giving people advice to do things moderately if you're expecting them to have any sort of changes in behavior. So saying this is what the research shows and then saying that's what people should be doing, there's a huge leap there. So the moderation is what perhaps research shows, but how to translate moderation into behavior at the public health level still needs a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in general, that's one of the huge challenges of the nutrition field, right? That the public wants black and white messages, but the science is never really black and white. The science isn't black and white and eating isn't black and white. We eat all the time and every meal, day, week, whatever goes by, you made a million decisions. If you ate something, then there's something you weren't eating. And if you chose to cut something out of your diet, you were eating something instead. And it's just so incredibly complex and dynamic. 
And even if you say, yeah, I eat meat, it doesn't mean you eat meat every meal. There's a frequency and portion assigned to that. And it's, it makes it difficult to research, but it makes it incredibly difficult to translate into effective messaging as well. And we haven't found very clear ways from a public health podium standpoint to implement even some of the recommendations that do seem like they should be straightforward you know, switching from refined to whole grains or reducing sodium intake or saturated fat or eating more fruits and vegetables. I mean, none of those have seemed to stick no matter how they get implemented or talked about or educated. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. So I'm always coming at the discussion from a less practical perspective, just thinking, you know, in the weeds of the science, what does the science really tell us? And it doesn't usually say this food is really bad and this food is really good, but you have much more experience on the implementation side and that I'm trying to avoid black and white messages, but then you might not get any traction unless you provide some really concrete, you know, recommendations. Right. It is really a catch 22. And You know, then if you say, okay, let's come up with a concrete message, then people say, well, actually, there's no evidence to say it has to be that much or that you can only have that much. And then, you know, there's a lot of quibbling over like, where's that threshold of where you're saying you can and can't have X amount. Like with a lot of the guidelines, they've tried to put numbers to make it reach this target and don't go above that level. And then it backlashes down the road when there's others who come along and say, well, why are we recommending four servings of grains? Where's the evidence for that? And there was no, you know, magic threshold in the research that said, once you pass four servings, you're good to go. But again, there was probably a discussion at the table somewhere where, you know, if we put a number on it, we'll hope people get halfway there and some people will get all the way there and they'll have a goal in mind and that's concrete. But yeah, there's a big gap between where the science is pointing or suggesting or even concluding and how to translate that. Well, I'm really glad that we have this forum to discuss some of these nuances because I think there are a lot of people that do actually want them, even if it's not something that everyone is interested in. So hopefully our listeners are actually intrigued to learn about the limitations and what's actually going on behind the scenes as people like you try to translate science into policy recommendations. Well, thank you so much for providing this platform for researchers and scientists and healthcare providers to come on and try to explain it a little bit better. I think ultra-processed foods in particular have been in the spotlight, and it'll be interesting to see down the road what we can tease out more, because as you mentioned, this is a huge group of foods, and it clearly isn't one-size-fits-all in terms of completely avoiding them and only doing everything that's not ultra-processed. There's a lot to learn. And I am really optimistic science will help disentangle that down the road. I'll just tell you practically in my kitchen, I often tend to kind of mix and match. So I'll have like a big salad and a veggies and hummus appetizer platter. But then my entree, I might have brown rice with like a prepared chili or a prepared curry or something like that, that gives me a head start. And so how do you implement this in your household? We actually do very similar. So there are certain components of the meal where it feels more like assembling than cooking, but we eat a lot of vegetables. Frozen vegetables, I think, are really easy. You don't have to do a lot of preparation. You don't have to have just gone grocery shopping. You can keep a few bags in the freezer and cook some corn or green beans or carrots or whatever it might be. So that feels more like assembling than cooking, but in a low processed way. And then there's sauces and other aspects that we just kind of keep in the pantry and use to just help weeknight dinners go much more quickly. 
And, and that's why they, you know, have been so successful and have such a huge market share is because we can't revert back to the olden days of the wife at home spending several hours cooking a dinner that everyone just comes home to. And we need more realistic options. And there are advances that ultra processed foods have uncovered that make a lot of that much more feasible. And if there can be ways to leverage that to direct people to more healthy options, then I think those should not be turned off because it has the word processed in it, but instead be embraced and used to the benefit. One final concrete tip I want to share from my own food shopping when I'm looking for prepared foods is to just be mindful of the sodium because there's a huge amount of variation in just like a canned tomato sauce in the sodium content. Is there anything that particular like that that informs your choices? Yeah, so low sodium, for sure. With beans and sauces, there's almost always low sodium versions. Another really tricky ingredient is added sugar. And sometimes you'll see the no sugar added really highlighted, but instead it will have artificial sweeteners. And I'm not against artificial sweeteners. I just think they taste disgusting. So I'll go home thinking it'll be a not sweet version because I don't need it to be sweetened. And it'll just have that aspartame taste. I've seen that with ketchup. They have no sugar added ketchup, but it has sweetener. And you know what I have not found a good version of are canned fruits that are not either in heavy syrup or artificial sweetened syrup. And I thought with winter and my kids still loving to eat fruit, having a canned version might be handy, but I don't know. Those are hard to find. Yeah. I do a lot of frozen fruits. Yeah. But thank you for both the scientific and practical advice. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fun. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye.